everyone. Welcome back to the Road to Wealth podcast. It is Justin Nackville here on the line and really excited for today's episode. It is the beginning of April and I must say we are not off to a great spring. We are actually experiencing snow here in the Chicagoland area. But without further ado, I am super excited about today's episode. I have the opportunity to connect with Douglas Bonaparte, the CEO of Bonafide Wealth. You may know him from Twitter or on social media, but we talk through the evolution of the financial advisor. And he really talks through how we bring relevancy to our changing generation and demographic, as well as how we talk through how we build into wealth accumulation. We touch on a number of different things such as traditional investments and also how we also shift to accepting assets like cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and DeFi. I really enjoyed this episode and if you feel that you loved it as well, feel free to share it out on social media to a, or to a friend and tag me. I would like to thank Doug for coming on today's podcast. And it would mean a lot to me if you leave a rating and review on your podcast player. And without further ado, let's shift to my conversation with Doug Bonaparte. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Road to Wealth podcast. This is Justin Knackpill, and I am honored to have this next guest on today's podcast. Um, to give a brief overview of this individual, he is originally from Florida. He's had a passion of personal finance from the beginning, growing in the industry amongst his father in the wealth management business. He is also co-author of a book called The Millennial Money Fix. He is president and founder of, financial, of the financial firm Bonafide Wealth in Manhattan in New York City. Additionally, an advisor to many outlets, including CNBC. You may also recognize him from his witty and humorous tweets and commentary online. And as we all know, he is a rich man because he makes coffee at home. But more importantly, he is rich because he is a, a husband and father of two girls, uh, similar to me, but for me, boys. I would like, uh, without further ado, I'd like to give a warm welcome to Mr. Doug Bonaparte to the Road to Wealth podcast. Hey, well, quite the intro. Hopefully I can uh, follow, follow suit on all that. Thanks for having me. Well, Doug, thank you for you know, uh, offering your time. And um, I, I know that the, the purpose of me reaching out to you was to really lay down the foundation of the evolution of the financial advisor. And um, being a fellow millennial and roughly around the same age as you, I, I think it's very relevant in, in today's times. So, Cool. So, Excited. So why don't you give a quick intro? I, I know many people may know you, but uh, give a little bit of intro of, of who you are and a little bit about your background. Yeah. Sure. So uh, you did a good job introducing me here. Background, you know, what, what I do day in and day out for a living is I run a wealth management firm that um, caters itself to now geriatric millennials. Um, I'm 37, a uh, father of two daughters, three and six, uh, a husband to an amazing wife uh, who's been uh, with me for forever, you know, since freshman year of college. So, um, you know, I'm probably very little without her by my side, um, everything that we've built has been truly a team effort. But um, Bonafide Wealth uh, is is my firm, and I noticed a uh, while back there was a massive um, gap or uh, lack of coverage in the wealth management uh, business as it uh, pertained to helping folks like me back in my twenties, my late twenties. Uh, with getting their financial life together. And the reason Heather, my wife, and I wrote our book, and I, I did not you know, have this on the table for any other reason than someone asked for a copy. The reason we wrote this book, there's the shameless plug, 
um, was because of her experience uh, that she had um, coming out of the recession and coming out of law school in New York City in 2008 into 2009. And this is where we saw not just her, but all of our friends, not all of our friends, but a lot of our friends educate themselves to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of tuition, whether it was law school or business school, and, and there's really no jobs there waiting for them. It's now, you know, the bottom of the market. Um, and I, I kind of saw this and said to myself, you know, my, my peers, my friends need help. You know, how did this happen? How did we get in this position? You're told, you know, just go educate yourself, take out the loans, it'll be fine. Get that college degree, get that graduate degree. The rest will take care of itself. Well, that fundamentally broke down in 2008 and nine, and you had young professionals, people just getting their, uh, you know, their professional careers going, uh, significantly delayed and encumbered with the debt that they had. They still had to make these payments on these rather large debt loads, and and yeah, this is you know very much a New York City, you know, Northeast kind of thing going on here, but it existed throughout the country in in relative terms. And there I was sitting in business school at NYU at night. You know, thinking how how am I going to grow a wealth management practice? I started with my father when I was nineteen and got four years of training throughout all of college before I decided leaving. You know, his practice and, and going out on my own and seeing if I could make it, and really just wanting to be with Heather as well in New York City. So I went from Florida to there and showed up in two thousand eight and nine, where this whole thing kind of all all started. And I had the epiphany that look, you know, we we can help our peers today. And these are the people we want to be investing in. You know, I, I had this idea. Let's flip. Let's flip what the industry or the wealth management profession is doing on its head. They're interested in getting people's dollars to invest. I became interested in investing with people so they could get dollars. And I knew if I was able to do that, um, I would be able to build a practice on clients I wanted to work with that were going to be super successful. That would be loyal to me for being there at the very beginning, right? When no one else would probably look at them or want to help them. And I just went with that. I, I literally built an entire practice and marketed around that. Um, and it paid off. You know, I, I obviously there's a lot that went into that. Um, I figured a mainstream media strategy. This is like just when social media and marketing and internet side of things for, for almost, you know, stumbling across Gary V for the first time, like seven years ago, I'm like, Oh my God, all I got to do is create some memes and, you know, I'm, I'm going to make it little. Did I know I'd actually be creating memes and shit posting on Twitter to like hundreds of thousands of people. Um, that never really, I, I took a more serious approach with the financial empowerment angle and, you know, these platitudes and it, it was kind of working, but my real mark was the fact that I was in Manhattan and could reach out. You know, our local news was uh, the national news. So I was able to grassroots effort, build um, relationships with uh, editors and producers and financial writers um, and had a niche that, you know, today isn't really all that niche, but working with millennials or saying you're a financial advisor that just wants to work with millennials seven years ago. Um, was just as cringy then as it is now, but uh, in that cringe was a real opportunity to do something that nobody else was doing. Um, and I got to play a game that nobody else was doing and, and build an entire practice and brand and reputation around that. No, I love that. And, you know, I, we obviously see the, the memes and uh, I think in today's <laughs> 
millennial and Gen Z language. That's the only way you should be uh, communicating. I feel like with many of m- many of our peers out there. Um, talk a little bit about those early days because I know you. You know, listening to your story, I know that you know you grew up around your father who was in the wealth management business. And um, what drew you to you know connecting those dots and doing it yourself? Yeah, yeah, I got to give him some credit here. You know, uh, I've told this story many times, and it always goes back to probably having too much fun at the University of Florida, and and really, you know, growing it out, being in a fraternity, and doing all of that. We, we caught three national championships in our last three semesters, so the entire time was just one real big crazy party. Um, I, you know, met my future wife there, Heather, and I, you know, have been together throughout that entire experience, which was a very grounding experience to have alongside of all the fun that we were having. So I kind of got the best of both worlds and got to be somewhat even keeled despite what we were doing uh, for fun there. And, you know, as it pertains to my dad, um, I I owe him a lot for, it was after my freshman year. uh, He's like, what are you doing this summer? And I said, I'm going to stay at school because this place is great. I'll just take some courses and credits. He's like, well, why don't you take your series seven, see if you you know, like what I do or, or have any interest in the, in the securities or financial advice field. And it really all just started with passing an exam, right? I think most people going into uh, finance need, need to go take their general securities license or their 65 or whatever angle you're going down. And I, I went home after my freshman year of college and found a series seven manual on my bed. And he said, see if you can knock it out before you go back to school for the second half of the summer. So I went out to the pool every day, you know, got some sun, uh, and studied and, you know, nothing different than I was nothing different than what I was doing for the past, like 18 years of my life, which is going to school and studying and taking tests. So whatever. And I like passed, like, I think you needed a 70% and it's exactly what I got. And I went back my sophomore year or that summer, you know, um, with a general, uh, securities license, which is pretty cool to think about it at 19, um, passing that exam, uh, I had no idea what to do with it. Like I, th- that's all it was. Right. And, and as I think he, you know, he, he got upset. I, I then didn't go take the other exams I needed to take like right after he would have thought like, cool, this is working. Let's go. He's like, I'm like, no, dad, I'm going back to school. Like I'm still a 19 year old college kid. And then, um, I started working with him, uh, throughout my entire, uh, college experience. So like I was a full-time college student as well as learning how to run a wealth management practice. I was learning about the business, sitting in client meetings to the extent I could. He, he would somewhat move his practice up to, up to uh, North Florida. Um, never asked him to do that. A little strange experience there. But again, to equip me uh, with four years of you know, real practical business know-how specifically to uh, wealth management is an edge that I gained. Um, and we'll again, forever be grateful for after college, living uh, at home and working with a parent, it was just too much. Um, I, you know, had Heather in New York going to law school, had no idea how I would get there. And uh, I just remember taking dinners up in my room to like go study the CFP. I I wanted nothing to do with sitting down at at the dinner table with my family after after having worked with my my father. And it got got to the point where something had had a change. And He's, he's a very loving dad. So he uh, noticed that, you know, look, son, you know, you want to stick around here or you want to go in New York City and chase some of your dreams here. And with that kind of like nod of mm. permission, I was like, I'm out. Um, and I started looking for uh, practices that I could plug myself into because I had 
the know-how. I had that edge to be able to operate an entire wealth management practice for a 30-something-year-old advisor looking to grow. I could plug and play. It was quite the value proposition. So getting to New York City, albeit the day like Lehman collapsed, right. um, yeah, like got off the plane. And that was you know, the beginning of the end as far as you know the financial markets went uh, at that time. But I was able to um, take the experience that and, and the knowledge that um, and that early start gave me to go uh, fetch myself a decent paying job in a financial advisor's practice uh, in New York City. And that got me up to New York, literally with four boxes of my stuff and some student loan debt. And that was that was it. Like I had to go buy a bed the second I showed up. Like I met my I got a roommate on Craigslist, had Heather make sure he wasn't a murderer. <laughs> and, you know, we all went out to lunch the day I showed up and I went to Sleepy's on Fifth Avenue to go get a $600 mattress. And I think I got like a 0%, you know, interest card. I just didn't want to dole out the 600 right. bucks. I was already like, I was already in debt showing up to New York City. Um, and there I was living on 38th and Park with a roommate, you know, in Murray Hill, classic rite of passage for, you know, New Yorkers coming up to try and seek out their dreams. And uh, that that's the origin story. No, I, I love it. And it, 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 like you talked about, Doug, about chasing your dreams. And it's very on brand for, for millennials, you know, moving to um, the big city, right, from from other areas. Um, you know, the, the one question, and, you know, around this episode is the evolution of the financial advisor. And, you know, you being, or rather us as millennials, being in that kind of gap generation between the boomers that are potentially retiring now and, newer ones, where do you find your role now within that space? Yeah, it's it's interesting how it's evolved. You know, I, I got to see if my bet was going to pay off, right? So in my late 20s, finally figuring out who I'd want to serve, whose hands I would want to hold in navigating, you know, not just their finances or their financial life, but their lives. Um, that's what this is really about. And what I've learned is that there's really no more dynamic time in, in an individual's life than, you know, getting them from their late mid twenties into their early forties. Um, you know, before the show started, you were sharing with me just how much happened in a 12 month period of time in your life. Um, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like I, I started Bonafide Wealth, had our first kid, bought our house um, all within a 12 month window, I think. That's insane. That's fucking nuts. There's literally no other time. And then expand that out in terms of where you're growing in your careers um, and where you're trying to get to. I, I, I seriously believe there's no more dynamic time than this period of time. Like maybe retirement is the next, you know, most, you know, uh, is, the, is the next craziest time, right? I'll discount, you know, your high school, you know, your, your elementary through high school and college experience gets its own thing. But as far as being like a mature adult goes, this is the craziest time, your biggest transactions, your biggest decisions, the things that will set the tone for the rest of your adult life, you know, are happening right here. Uh, things that lock you into place and there's no, you know, you can't, I mean, you can you can run away from your family. I don't recommend doing that, you know, or you know these really big decisions. Not a good look. So, um, you know, for me, it's been very interesting to see how we've all when I say we've all the demographic that I that I particularly serve um, has evolved from their twenties into their thirties, and now I get to take that experience that I've shared with them, and I've gotten to um, share alongside of them if they've been my clients to really get a unique perspective 
as to what it's like to be, you know, an older millennial going through life. Um, you know, whether it's in around big cities or what, I got clients all over and I see what the common themes and I see what the common threads and struggles and opportunities are uh, for our generation. And um, I'm very, very fortunate to be able to have that perspective and take those observations and turn them into real practical financial advice for people looking to solve actual problems that they uh, need to get over or um, goals that they want to solve for themselves. And I have all these great examples in case, you know, they're all like case studies. Cool. Here's how Mr. and Ms. Smith dealt with $120,000 in debt, having a kid in high rent in the city and needed to get to the birds. Here, here's how to set that up. So you have a high degree of probability that you'll succeed in doing that too. Or Mr. and Ms. Johnson over here struggled because they did this. Let's not make that same mistake. And this is how we solved it as well. So um, that that's kind of what I've been able to take away um, over the last six to nine years. You know, it's been five, a little over five years since starting Bonafide Wealth and probably more like seven to eight years of, of dealing with, you know, millennials and dealing with us. And what started out as particularly dealing with student loans and getting us started in our lives. Now we're in mid-career with families and kids, you know, cash accumulation and getting, you know, the foundation built and set. And now reaping the benefits of that hard work and setting that foundation to literally compound that growth. So that's accumulating assets, right? That's getting actually on our way to those longer term goals, like not having to work forever, or sending children to college. Mm -hmm. This is how you do it. Like none of this just happens, right? Nothing, nothing just lands in your lap. Anything, you know, nothing worth doing is easy. And I get to see all the different shades of what not easy is um, relative to what maybe looks easier um, from all walks of life, all kinds of people going through all kinds of shit. And it's very humbling. And it's an honor to serve my clients. And the honor comes when you see them achieve their goals and knowing that you were able to help them do that. Um, so it's, 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 it's quite the job. It really is. It really is. You know, it's so much more than just, you know, managing money, right? The, the, my dad would always say the investment side is easy. Helping people manage their money is the easy part, putting yourself in their shoes. That's the hard part. I want, I want to pull on that string, Doug, because what I loved about your website, there's this piece on your website where, um, in bonafidewealth.com where it's, in other words, we are not your parents' financial advisor, right? <laughs> and, I love that because, you know, we've been blessed as millennials to have such an evolution of technology, fast, you know, fast growth and really change within our economics. What have you noticed differently when you were going up with your dad and I hate to say managing geriatrics money to now where we're <laughs> dealing with, you know, like how do those tastes and preferences change generation to generation? Yeah, I think what's interesting is that at the end of the day, like the, the core goals and the aspirations across all generations remains pretty much the same. You know, I think ultimately, um, from gener generation to generation, people want to uh, be happy, people want to see their families and their children be happy and get set up for success. Um, you know, this notion that millennials don't want a home with a white picket fence around it. I don't necessarily believe that. I think sometimes by choice, I, I sometimes think they don't have a choice other than to accept 
you know, the path that isn't that, but I think if you ask most people, regardless of what generation they belong to, you know, being comfortable and having a place to live with a roof over your head, um, is generally a good, it's generally something that they want, but I think the economic and financial realities are quite different for millennials than they are other generations or particularly boomers in this case. Um, and I'm not here to say that it's harder. I'm not here to say that it's, you know, it's not a pissing contest of who has it yeah. harder because we're, you just said, we're blessed with all this technology and, you know, we, we, you know, I, I, I once, I haven't said this in a while, but like, I kind of feel like baby boomers want you to appreciate the remote control. What do I mean by that? They want you to appreciate the fact that when they grew up, that they had to get up from the couch to go over to the television and turn the knob. That when they had to go find a book in a library, they were working with the Dewey Decimal System. And if you remember what a Dewey Decimal System is, you're definitely a geriatric millennial. Um, otherwise, I don't think you have any idea what that is uh, in, in our generation. Um, they want you to appreciate that it was harder. You had to do more to get you know the value out of something. And I think there's something to be said for that. At the same time, I think millennials want boomers to appreciate, like, okay, I can respect that, but you also need to respect that I have a supercomputer in my hand and I can multitask and I can do it differently and be just as productive. And I don't need to do it the way that you did it because there's better ways today. And you see that show up in management a lot. Hey, son, hey, daughter, you need to you know, do it this way because that's the way I did it and you need to pay your due. Well, there's Google, there's this resource. No, that's a shortcut shame on you. And it's like, bro, come on. Like, I'm not gonna deal with this, I'm out. You flaky millennial left again. Southern boomer didn't change with the time. Which one is it? And you see this conflict, this friction, you know, happen day in and day out in corporate America management, at the voting booth, in our political process, in a lot of structures that, you know, a lot of power structures that have been, you know, created. And, and it creates resentment between generations. I mean, I even harbor some like, you guys got to get out of the way now. You go look at, um, you know, the political structure. And what's the average age of a senator? What's the average age of a representative? You know, you got CEOs of tech companies coming to Capitol Hill and, and they're being asked questions that are, are mind-blowingly stupid to be asking, you know, Mark or Jack or whoever is talking. And it's just like, oh, my God, this is how policy is being created. And now it's not even about us. It's about our kids Right. I mean, is this the type of stuff that's being put out there for the future generation? Not even millennia. I feel like we're done, you know, like we're not. But like pass the baton, like mm. we're the most well-educated generation out there, um, the most diverse generation out there. And this is what, you know, this is somewhat of an American dream type thing. Set us loose. See what we can do. Why are you guys still holding the, you know, you're still raiding the coffers here. It's enough. So that's a little diatribe along those lines of where I see friction show up in a number of places. But the whole appreciate the remote control, it's a matter of respect. And I think there needs to be more respect going back and forth. It's a two-way street. You need to appreciate younger folks. You need to appreciate they didn't have all the gizmos and gadgets and technology and internet. And it was different, maybe more simplistic, and maybe they got to enjoy some things a little bit more than we do being distracted. So our economic challenges and realities are tied to this very thing. It's tied to the fact that, you know, life uh, is being filtered away through Instagram, you know, and, and that keeping right. up with the Joneses mentality of, you know, the FOMO and the FUD is real, right? The, the fear, uncertainty, doubt, or the fear of missing out, all fear, you know, this fear-based stuff that's being created because we, we live in feedback loops in real time 
on a device in our hands. It's never good enough. Those are the challenges that we face. And look, that's a very different challenge than, you know, you're being recruited to go fight in Vietnam or go fight in a war. You know, I, I'm very grateful we don't have to do that. You know, my grandpa did that in World War II, and he hopefully did it so we'd never have to do that, right? But be that as it may, um, these are the these are the comparison and con- the, compa- the comparisons and contrasts that I see from specifically millennials and boomers. You can throw Gen X in there a little bit as well that that need to be resolved, that need to be bridged, so that we we can have better understanding. So. I definitely went on a little, you know, bit of a rant there, but that's, that's how good. I see things, you know, through through the through the lens of the generations. But tying it back to like the financial piece, uh, again, I don't think it's harder. I just think it's different, right? There's student loan debt, uh, wage growth that hasn't really increased. Um, rents are high. Home prices are out of control. The middle class has been squeezed that much more. Um, you know, these are tough things to deal with. Um, economically and financially speaking, and they have to be weighed against the fact that there are a ton of things, you know, to our advantage from healthcare and, and you know, not necessarily getting healthcare, but the quality of you know, right. the quality of life, right, and the and the ability to stay healthier, and the advancements we have in in those areas, and of course, technology as a whole, you know, we're the benefactors of that. Yeah, you hit on it earlier, just as far as like you know what what bounds us together across all generations is we want a, a healthy place to live. We want to be able to go out and, you know, spend time with our family and friends. Our values haven't changed. It's just demographically, there is this push and pull of where do we innovate and where, what, frankly, structures and infrastructures, we need to just toss the shit out and just figure out a different path. Yeah. I mean, look, we're dealing with a lot of, um, a lot of infrastructure, s- social infrastructure, actual infrastructure, roads and bridges and things like that, um, that, you know, it's going to be our generation's job to fix, you know, um, I'm very disappointed that, um, we've been, we've been, you know, eroding this so, so far down that literally bridges collapse into rivers, costing people their lives that, our political system doesn't match the the voice and sentiment of the people um, that are going to be coming into power. You know, our, it's 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 Gen X and Millennials' time to take you know the baton and and shape uh, a world for the better. Um, and we're not getting that chance at the, at the particular moment, and it's very it's very frustrating. Um, but you know, I am bullish on our generation and our skills. To be able to take that baton once we can get it and do something really good with it, um, largely because we're not going to have a choice. I think we're we're going to be tested real good. See just how smart and just what our ingenuity is in terms of solving big problems. Um, otherwise, we're going to kick them down the road, and there's going to be more trouble waiting for us when we're older, you know, and in our later ages, and bigger problems for our children to solve. And uh, I'd like to know that we we can get ahead of that. No, for sure. And I loved your analogy around the, you know, the war, uh, the war example, like, you know, for my parents, they had to immigrate from the Philippines from a third world nation into America and navigate life that way. And it, it also shows generationally, like our older generation, you know, looks at like things like bonds and real estate and more traditional assets versus us where we have the luxury of 
things like we're going to talk about in the future, you know, soon in this conversation around cryptocurrency and um, mm -hmm. zero-based environment. Like the the change within the financial infrastructure has, has also shifted as well. I, going back, you know, generationally, you made the example of you know the older older guard going through wars and going through mm -hmm. you know you know for me you know coming from an immigrant family like they had to deal with jumping from the Philippines over to America and assimilating right and also mm -hmm. like our financial products have changed right like we don't we can't align with people that just put money under a mattress or just put it into a savings account or, or bonds yeah. like there's so many products out there like how do we choose with so much choice now yeah and that's that's a very big distraction from making you know just decisions that are are timeless and you know granted how many millennials are going to be investing in bonds you know um some some folks have moved on from the stock market and now are only focusing on on cryptocurrencies and decentralized financial products because they don't believe that the system works for them this is how greatly things have changed from an era where our grandparents would keep cash under a mattress because they didn't know what were in the walls like you hear that all the time you know we know better than to necessarily do we don't want to be holding cash so while it is more challenging, the flip side is you have more opportunity, but you need to have the knowledge in place first in order to know what it is that you're doing. And what's missing is that education component. So I call this um, access without knowledge. Mm -hmm. So having access to stuff that you don't know about, but sounds good because someone on Twitter is saying it's great, or you watch an influencer on YouTube, you know, promote it, that could be precarious in terms of actually, you know, doing that thing. Because if you were knowledgeable beforehand, you would know if what they're trying to chill you is junk versus, hey, maybe I should consider, you know, putting some money at play here. And that opens a whole, you know, box of when is the right time to be investing in the first place. Um, but you can still hold true to, um, you know, uh, timeless strategies of, you know, dollar cost averaging in, buy, you know, getting... Let me let me back up what that even means. It's just regularly saving and investing, building the good habits that you need to survive in today's financial world. Those things have never changed. Spend less than you make. Find, you know, be consistent in taking that difference and either saving it for your cash needs and then understanding when you need to stop saving cash because that's not going to help you grow your wealth and start making investments in things that appreciate. These are fundamentals. These haven't changed regardless of the products that are out there. You can still invest in the S&P 500. You can still invest in major indices. And that's what's going to be right for 99% of people. It's getting the discipline and the knowledge in place first that separates really the winners from the losers. Imagine being given the keys to a car um, you know, without the driver's license or being given a license to drive without actually having studied the test or getting experience on the road you know what's going to happen. You're going to get in the car, you're going to drive real fast, and you're going to crash the thing or get into an accident. So that's knowledge without, you know, access without knowledge. So, you know, you, the same thing's going to happen. Cool, I can go trade stonks on Robinhood or whatever platform because, and I can use leverage. I don't know what I'm doing, but everyone's doing it. Let me go triple levered, you know, XYZ and all of a sudden you're in the hole a hundred grand and you're 22 and you have no idea how you did that. That'll set you back. You didn't even get, you know, you didn't even get a college education for that. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to be back a hundred grand because you got a degree. It's another thing because you yellowed some meme stocks. 
Oh, and I, I, we have some questions around meme stocks later for you. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the full Doug Bonaparte response for that. But um, sure. it's it's true. Like there is so much choice out there that um, it, it almost becomes overwhelming because access is so free now. You can open up an Instagram account, you could follow a few hashtags or follow people on Twitter, and then all of a sudden have this amazing investment idea. Um, we're in the traditional sense because you know we, we have this sound. You talked about you know access. Um, for those that need that access, where, where do you guide that? Like your normal millennial or normal Gen Z are coming out of college. Where do they start? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could plug the book and say, just go read my book, but I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Um, it will give you, but it will give you a guide as to what to do in terms of picking out schools all the way to, you know, selling down and, and marrying. What you need to focus on are the foundational pieces. And, and these are, these are on you. Like these are on, you have to do this. Look, you can farm a lot of it out to technology or, you know, applications that do budget for you and track your expenses. I don't care if you use tools to help you with this, that's fine. But at the end of the day, I think you need to care. Like you need to care enough. You've got to want it. All this stuff gets filed under self-care. Like no one's going to exercise for you. No one's going to eat right for you. No one's going to diet for you. No one's going to manage your you know, financial situation for you. Someone can invest for you. Someone can do your taxes for you, but no one's going to care whether or not you're getting to your financial goals other than you. So the first thing here is, do you give a damn? Do you give a damn about going after the things that you want in life? A lot of it is just not knowing what you want for yourself. And that's some big boy, big girl thinking. That's hard to do when you're 17, 18, 19, 24, 27, Geez, there's even people in their 40s who no idea what they want for themselves. And that's going to make it very difficult to plan uh, to do anything, whether it's save or invest. So first, take control and have a desire to take control of your financial life. And that starts by understanding how money comes in and out of your life, right? What, what do you need to be comfortable? What does that leave you in terms of money uh, to save or invest? And do you know what you're saving and investing towards? Right. I can say this effortlessly, but it's hard to do if you've never done it before. And that means look, you don't you don't need to read a book in order to say, hey, where has my money been going every month? What have I been spending my money on? Because I'm not able to save or do the things that I want to do outside of that in terms of focus on my long term goals. I'm doing everything I want to do in the short term in the here and now. So if you're having this idea, like I got to do something for myself in the future. You know, if, by the way, if you're not having that thought, what's wrong? You know, yeah. what's, what's going on? So that's kind of really where it all starts. The desire to, to want things for yourself and, create, and figure out how you're going to get there and where your financial resources are going. That's a lot. So if you're asking me what the first step is, it's, that it's, it's right there. And that can take a considerable amount of time, depending on where you are in your life. This is going to be particularly harder for, you know, younger people going into college, fresh out of college didn't go to college in their early 20s, um, hopefully it becomes a little easier as you learn more about yourself and experience life a little bit more into your 30s, right? The sooner you can get to it, the better, of course. Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons, too, I reached out to Doug was, you know, last year there was this recent Wall Street Journal article about, you know, millennials and financial advisors. And I think the title was, you know, thanks for the round of golf, but hell no, you're not going to manage my money. Um, what? Where do you feel, Doug, that more traditional yeah, legacy. I remember, I remember, I remember that article. Yeah, exactly. So I, I'm curious your thoughts there, just because you know us as millennials, we we've talked about access, we've talked about having the knowledge, but we have, I'm sorry to say, some guy in a Brooks Brothers suit 
hate to stereotype here, that wants to manage your money and put you in a high index, you know, insurance product or, you know, more of the traditional sense. Like, yeah, yeah, what are your yeah, thoughts yeah. there? Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, a function of uh, the profession and the industry as to what its roots are, transactional, broker-based, make a sale. And a lot of that culture to this day exists in the vast majority of wealth management. You know, the notion of the fee-only or advice-only advisor and the fiduciary, the person who's looking out for your best interests and has to uh, and is, is obligated to do that uh, is relatively new uh, in comparison to your stockbroker, your insurance salesman, um, who's just trying to get the next sale and next commission in the door. And, you know, we're doing a good job getting away from that, whether it's through fee-based ways of making money, meaning charging a percent. I don't think that quite gets you there. I think what does is working with certified financial planners or people who understand the financial planning process and want to understand your financial life and provide real actionable advice and, you know, recommendations that get you closer to your financial goals. And if then you want to do investment management with them, uh, you can, and it's an option. That's how I set it up at my firm, advice first, planning first, everything else second, which is really just investment advice. Some folks do the insurance piece too. We did that for a long time. Don't, don't do that anymore um, for, for better marketing reasons and less conflicts. Um, so I, I think the profession is still growing out of you know, those, those brokerage sales type uh, that sales type era into something that needs to be more relationship based. Um, and look, you're talking about financial institutions that have been around for, you know, 80 to a hundred years that are, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar organizations with tens of thousands of employees responsible for shareholders. Um, a lot of times it's difficult to say, Hey, look, we need to completely rethink our wealth management business and our wealth management arm hey, let's go tell the shareholders they're going to get 30 cents less a share because of this decision here today. That's sometimes a very unpopular thing to do because, you know, you want to return as much value as soon as possible. If, if you're a shareholder, you know, if you're a shareholder, or you're running a big company like that. I think you're seeing things move a lot faster in your independent, you know, registered investment advisors or independent financial advisory practices because um, they're a lot more nimble. You can you can write those ships and turn those ships a lot faster than your JP Morgans and you know UBSs of the world. Where you know you know even I give you give Morgan Stanley credit. They're like we're not going to you know do cold calling anymore. That that I was like wow, wow that that is a bold decision. That is the right decision and a bold decision to be making when we think about the future of your wealth management business. So. Um, there's some proof in the pudding as to, you know, the, the bigger players, the big dogs are, are starting to see it the way that, that I see it and many others see it as far as what the future of the profession looks like. And, I, you know, one, one aspect too is, you know, our demographic we talked about with crypto, right? Like how does, how do we fit, you know, that alternative investment or any alternative investment for that, you know, between, between, the, the, you know, DeFi with Ethereum yeah. or things like Bitcoin, like how do we as as traditional and you as an advisor coach that yeah so i've i've been fortunate enough to be an early adopter of, of of specifically bitcoin and blockchain technology having bought a bitcoin miner with a buddy of mine and my wife uh you know almost eight nine years ago at this point and uh i've been following it very closely i've watched almost you know nobody talk to me about it from a practice point of view meaning prospects or clients 
you know, barely getting educated or understanding 27, you know, that was back in, so I mined back in 2014, then comes 2017, Bitcoin, $20,000, everyone and their mother knows what it is. And then crypto winner yet again. And now we're into all these other uh, forms of cryptocurrencies, Ethereum being the second biggest one, NFTs, Web3, Metaverse, (laughs) you know, it seems that just in the last, you know, year or two, it's really exponentially gotten into, you know, you just had yesterday, not to, um, timestamp the the podcast here um you had the president of the free world of the united states you know talk about creating a, a crypto council in the u.s development what what you have the president of the united states talking about crypto dude two years ago you know it was it was a joke to 99.9 percent of people it's not a joke it only gets more and more serious and more and more capital gets allocated to it so for me, I've always taken the attitude of learn as much as you possibly can about this. Um, look at the demand that's there. It went from no one having questions to 40 to 50% of my clients and prospects either having exposure, having questions, or wanting to know how they should get educated around it. And the best advice I could give around this is, number one, the, the regulators haven't given me much latitude in terms of offering unsolicited advice around crypto. So I take the stance of I'll educate people around it. That seems to always work. But that, you know, and, and part of that education is actually doing, you know, I think it's important for people not just to read up on it and know what these, you know, what the terminology and jargon and what this stuff is, but it might even be worth, you know, putting very little skin in the game. I'm talking like one to $10, you know, uh, figure out how to connect your bank account to a crypto exchange uh, and, and, and buy a token or buy some Bitcoin or Ethereum. I'm talking one to $10, like literally figure out the infrastructure. I don't care about the $10. I don't care about the price action right now. We'll see who the winners and losers are in terms of, you know, what, what, when moon, when, you know, when, when is it going, you know, up, 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 up. Um, that's not as important as getting your arms around the infrastructure, the tools, the user experience. I think that's going to give you an edge. So yeah, connecting, uh, connecting your bank account to an exchange, moving money to a digital wallet, trusting a trustless system for the first time in your life. Um, this is all super important stuff in my book. And I, I can already tell you, you know, having learned it early on is proving to be a, a very, very good move um, from a professional setting and a personal setting as well. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I know you're bullish. Um, ironically enough, you also made an NFT around coffee, which uh, you and I definitely um, speak to. Uh, and I think it's very much on brand for you, Doug. So, yeah. So, um, so in wrapping, I know it's, uh, Doug's been very generous with his time. Do you mind if we move to the lightning round? This should be very quick and we'll be let's go. Up. All right. Awesome. So, uh, Doug, in your budget with Heather, what is the one category that you spend the least amount on? Ooh, it's an awesome question. Hey, honey, what's the le- what in in our budget? What's what, what category do you think we spend the least amount of money on? She's Com- <laughs> smart commuting because we work from home now. So all of our tolls and gas and parking from going from here to Jersey City to get to Manhattan that has pretty much eliminated. Yeah, that was thousands of dollars a year, probably down to hundreds of dollars a year. So the MTA so is no longer around. available. Yeah, bring Heather. Yeah, in. I went to the I went to the city for the seventh time in two years yesterday. I still had luckily four dollars left on my MTA card. It got me back across the river to get home. So solid yeah. win. Uh, so similar question: uh, What is the budget or category in your budget for you and Heather that you guys spend the most money on? 
Ooh, that's a that's an easy one. We love food. We're foodies. We don't bat an eyelash on a good dining experience because, uh, you know, very New York City thing. We 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 cook a lot too, so it's not even like going out to eat. We we'll we'll buy ingredients and, and really quality stuff to go cook at home. So I, I think we'll see see food up there. Awesome, definitely ours as well. Um, so I got two last questions for you. These are very creative questions that I I thought of that I felt I would love your input on. So. If Hollywood made a movie of the GameStop squeeze, what would it look like? And if you had to play a character in the movie, who would you play? Oh, that's that's so good. Um, what would it look like? Um, it would it would have a vibe of like you know the Big Short. You know, it would have a vibe of uh, Margin Call if you've ever seen that I movie. Have. Um, th- those, those have actually very similar vibes to them. Uh, so, you know, have that financial theme, big city type thing going on. Um, and who would I want to be? My mind immediately went to Vlad. I know. Vlad from Robin Hood. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't want to be Vlad. I don't, I don't want to be Vlad and I don't want to be like, I don't want to be the hedge, but like people would be like, look at this hardo. If they ever look at my like Twitter Abby in a suit, they'd be like, he's definitely going to be, you want to know who I want to be. I want to be one of the young buck hedge fund managers that also, you know, took the side of who made money um, going long on GameStop. You know, the people you didn't hear about that made like, you know, there's, there, there were guys, there were literally guys and girls that made like $600 million. You don't know who they are, but they bet big money on it and they absolutely crushed it. I'll be some rando, some rando financier hedge fund guy that bet in the right direction. See, for me, it would be the, the big Redditor that got called to Congress and had memes of cats and everything like that. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. You, you, yeah. You'd be a roaring kitty. I would be roaring kitty exactly. Um, yeah. and, and the I, last, I am not a cat. I am not a cat. Exactly. His his responses were were amazing, by the way. Um, and the last question I had, which I felt was pretty creative as well. Um, what '90s or early 2000s trend would you want to bring back for the younger generation to adopt and make cool again? Oh, it's funny. I keep my mom sent me. My my 1990s Tamagotchi, um, it's it's in my office and sits in my um, sits in my valet on my desk. I keep failing to put a new battery in it to see if it will turn on. Um, that's not necessarily what I want. Uh, I love I love 90s nostalgia so much. But you said late night. I love probably oh, mid 90s early 90s nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah, early two thousands. Oh man, uh, yeah, that even puts me. That's high school for me, right? Mm-hmm. What would it be? I mean, I, I this takes me back to like burning CDs. You know, like let's bring a Walkman back and like burn a CD of your twelve favorite tracks. So, because I hustled in high school, my friend and I, you know, we learned Habsies on like a CD burner, or we both bought CD burners. I begged my dad for one, and I think like Napster just came out. I was like, you know, boot, come arrest me. I was like bootlegging, you know, for 10 bucks, you got 10 tracks on a CD, and you were the most popular kid and biggest entrepreneur in your high school if you were able to, you know, do, you know, not get shut down by the principal or something like that. So, a- a- anything from collecting, 
you know, baseball cards. I did the pogs. I did it all. I did every collectible thing, which is kind of why I like NFTs kind of really hit the collector, the nineties collector's heart here. But there was some fun stuff in late nineties, early two thousands that involved like having a CD burner. We got to, (laughs) I don't know why that's the thing I like. That was, that was a good one. Well, uh, I just saw a head- headline. I'll send it to you later, Doug, that Sony is bringing back the Walkman for $3,000, apparently, naturally. Uh, hey, so mar- mark my mark my words that, you know, the next big, you know, it's already a big market, but it will be an explosive market, will be that 90s nostalgia for millennials. Like, we're going to blow so much money on bringing back, you know, wait for Pogs to come back, you know, like, wait for all these things we blew so much money on to come back and it's not even our kids that are going yeah our kids are going to kind of get on it and enjoy it but it's the parents with the real money that are going to be just dumping money back into this stuff this is going to be our midlife crisis i i, I could already expect it. exactly this, that's exactly what it is it's for the millennials midlife crisis they're just going to dump it into 90s nostalgia perfect well doug you've been very generous with your time man um please tell the audience where they could find you absolutely um, you know, you'll find me on Twitter at Doug Bonaparte, Instagram at Doug Bonaparte. It's all at Doug Bonaparte, bonafidewealth.com uh, for, for the business website, but uh, not hard to find me. You can just Google Douglas Bonaparte and uh, all paths will lead to hopefully the right way. I'll put your social media. I'll also put the book uh, that you wrote with Heather and then also about crypto drips as well. Um, you've been very generous with your time, Doug, and I appreciate you coming on the Road to Wealth podcast, man. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful.